Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Always extra excited when someone's back for their third appearance. We have Kate Eberly Walker back today. She's the CEO of Presence Learning, and she wrote a book that we talked about briefly last time she was on the show. It's called The Good Boss. We're going to dive into how to be a good boss, why she wrote the book, lots of really interesting stuff to dig into there. But before we do any of that, Kate, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited to meet the triple guest mark here. Yeah, I know. And and there's a refrigerator magnet in this for you as if you didn't have incentive enough. I'm in it for the magnet. Yeah, Absolutely. Ex- exactly. But uh, you've also written a magnetic book, not literally magnetic, but uh, but there's a lot of interesting ideas in there. And uh, we talked briefly about it the last go around, but Maybe just a real uh, short introduction of who you are in case folks aren't familiar with who you are, and then we can get into The Good Boss and what drove you to write it. Sure. Yeah. So I'm currently CEO of Presence Learning, which is a teletherapy company. We provide therapy for special education programs for K through 12 schools. And I've I've worked in education a long time before Presence Learning. I was most recently CEO of the Princeton Review and Tutor.com, which I've talked with you in the past about lots of interesting thoughts and directions about education and what's going on in our education community these days. And yeah, now I've written a book, which is out in the world too. It's called The Good Boss, Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. And it is informed by my own experiences now as a CEO and also reflecting on my path throughout my career upward through the corporate world. Yeah, it's a great read. I just finished it. I definitely recommend it to our listeners. I have the nine rules open in front of me. They're all really accessible. They're really interesting. I think we could go through them quickly. We'll zero in on a few of them along the way to go a little bit deeper. One of the things I will say that I really liked about the book is the fact that it's very accessible. It's as though you're having coffee with a friend and they're telling you stories about their life experience, their work experiences. And it is very much about growth and self-improvement as a professional and as a whole professional, not just as someone who's laser focused on work. And, and it also, I, I did really the fact that it maybe wasn't exclusively written for men, but it is a book that is very important for men to read uh, because frequently when you talk about being a good manager for women, or you're talking about what it's like to rise as a woman through your professional life, at times, I think men can tune those conversations out. And you seem to have very specifically focused on what it takes to be a good boss to women. And that message is in some ways as important to get out Mm -hmm. to men as it is to get uh, to women. Yeah. A lot of times people, men and women do kind of default to the idea that when you talk about mentorship of women, management of women, that's for women to do. And and it was true in a lot of cases in my own career. I, I really got set on my path to becoming a CEO when I went to work for a female CEO and she mentored me. She saw me as her successor and developed me to get there. And that's true for a lot of women. When they look back, you find these other women who become your mentors and your advocates. But I just kept running the math on that and recognizing there's not nearly enough women in positions of influence, power, CEO seats, board seats to provide all of the mentorship and development that all of the younger women out there need. And I started thinking more about other bosses and mentors in my life and recognized a lot of them were men 
as well, who mm-hmm. really did important things for me in my career and started talking with other women. And it was true for them as well, that yeah. there you have all kinds of good bosses, important bosses in your lives. Many of them are men. By the numbers of it, it's going to be that way. Two out of three managers are men. I wanted to write something that got over that default assumption of, mm-hmm. oh, this is advice for managing women. So it's for women to read. And so, you know, I almost maybe go overboard at times and in, in really being direct and, and clear, wanting to be clear about it. Men, this is for you yeah. too. And, yeah. and I think it takes that. There, there is that societal bias. Even still, when I talk about the book and tell male leaders about it, I do often get a first response of, oh, this is so great. I'm going to give it to my wife. I'm going to give it to my daughter. I'd love to have you come speak to our women's group at our company. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty determined to surpass the bias and be like, that's great. I'd love to talk to all of those people, but I also want you to read it. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, it's an even better book for the male managers in your life, at least from my perspective, because I think there's a lot to learn from. And the lessons learned frequently, as I mentioned, that when we were setting up, they're frequently cringeworthy. They're <laughs> frequently, oops, somebody mm-hmm. did something they really shouldn't do. And it's many of these roles, it's I kind of wish Kate didn't have to write that down. But at the same time, you really did have to write these things down. So like they, they may sound obvious, but especially when you flesh it out with some real personal experiences from you or lessons learned from other executives who, who you've interviewed throughout the book. And there's, there's good statistics throughout the book too. So it seems to check all the boxes across those fronts. But the first rule is a good place to start, which is call her by her name. Again, sounds intuitive, but then mm-hmm. when you start peeling the layers back, you start realizing all the ways in which frequently it might be called a microaggression or just something subtle that quote unquote slips out that really doesn't show the level of respect and comfort with someone Mm -hmm. perhaps that uh, leaders frequently exhibit maybe for male employees. Can you expand a bit on the caller by her name rule? Yeah, it sounds so simple. It's get her name right. And that includes not using terms of endearment, not nicknaming her when she didn't introduce herself that way, saying it right, spelling it right, remembering if she gets married and changes her name or doesn't, calling her what she chooses to be called. This was such an interesting rule and chapter to write because it just kept getting longer. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was, okay, I'm going to start with the simple, like this will be a short one. It, it's, I believe it's the longest chapter in the book because mm-hmm. there was so much to say. There were women had so much to say. I mean, the stories that I tell from them about the experiences they have, there are so many moments and they happen every day. So it's, right. it's that feeling of it adds up and it's really, it's distracting at best, I think infuriating at worst when somebody calls you by the wrong name and when you correct them and they do it again, it it creates this extra burden that women really feel because now like their lack of listening skills or lack of attention paid to you and getting your name right now. Now it's created this burden on you. Do I correct him a second time? Do I want to be that person? Should I just deal with it? And that kind of weight really can add up over the course of a career. And there's a lot of cases where, but to me, it's one of the easier things that a manager can do and get right. Pay attention to these things. I'm surprised in my own company and meetings in the everyday, I've become the name police and yeah. you know, 
always jumping in and, and correcting when somebody says it wrong, spells it. Yeah. And it's very topical. Dr. Jill Biden, Jill Biden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was recently called out a bit by the Wall Street Journal. And then the Wall Street Journal got a, plenty of blowback for that a conversation that was started. But there are a lot of, and you mentioned it, almost subtle digs that you may not want to make a big deal out of. And that was something else that it was great to get that window into your experiences where you're someone, you went to Harvard Business School, you understood negotiation and power moves as well as anyone. Mm -hmm. But you also come across as someone who, at least earlier in your career, was a nice person. But you had to understand, do I just want to go along to get along? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to make a point of this? And frequently when you're just getting to know someone is when the naming begins. And if you're not taking that first step and asserting yourself, frequently it is almost a power move and you don't always know what's happening on the other side. There's a lot of power dynamic at play here. When you introduce yourself and someone doesn't feed the same name back that you said, they weren't listening to you. And you know, people listen when they think someone's important. They're not going to get the name wrong of the president of the United States or right. the, for the CEO in their company. I'm, I'm now on the comfortable side of it and people don't get my name wrong. And it's partly me having that perspective now and recognizing it. Wait a second. Like it's the same name that it always was. That's really interesting. I used to have to stop people all the time who I said, I'm Kate. And they said, nice to meet you, Katie. And, right. you know, and I was like, it's not Katie. It's Kate. I didn't say Katie. And there's, there, there's a signal there that mm-hmm. someone is telling you that they don't think you're that important when they don't listen well enough to get your name. And then you have to decide on your end of it. Am I going to call that out? Am I going to make it uncomfortable? Am I going to let it go? Suffer the consequence myself that I'm really annoyed right now at, at being called by a slightly wrong name. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then just moving through the rules, there's a be be someone she can relate to. I think that one makes sense. That one's also interestingly tied to uh, rule. That's rule number two. Rule number eight, which is be an equal opportunity uh, asshole. So Mm -hmm. ideally, you could be someone she relates to. But if you are gonna, you know, be critical and tough, don't just be critical and tough to your male employees who can handle it. Uh, Be critical and tough to everyone. A lot to chew on there. Rule number three, don't ask what, what your husband does, which is another one that I think maybe is a little bit cringeworthy. But getting to rule number four, which is one I want to, as I know you have some interesting stories about this one, don't sit in her chair. Can you share the story? Because it's also interesting where you go into some of your personal experiences as a, a working mom and as someone who took maternity leave and then was coming back. Same thing with your name changing around that. It was nice that you you covered that full span of your experiences from beginning early career Mm -hmm. right on through coming back. But can you tell the story about not sitting in her chair? Yes, sure. So this is something that happened to me when I was coming, coming back to the office, my first day back after my first maternity leave. So I'd had my first daughter, took three months away from the office and I was coming back. And yeah, I think for anyone who has gone through that process and has made the return to work, the first day back is really complicated, really emotional, really hard. It's very difficult to leave this baby for the first time um, for a whole day. And it's it's just disorienting, honestly, to be back out in the world as a you know fully functioning adult, you know, for the first time in a while. So it's it's one of those days that is that it's a really big deal. And I think it's and I say that to say it's 
really important and incumbent upon coworkers and your manager, especially to be ready for that day, ready to welcome you back. So what happened to me on that first day, I, I came in, you know, rode up in the elevator, got off, walked to my office, and there was literally somebody sitting in my chair. It was my Goldilocks and the three bears experience. There was there, one of my coworkers was sitting in my office and totally, you know, working at the mm -hmm. desk. And we had this sort of awkward exchange. I was like, hi, he's like, welcome back. And we chatted and then there's a pause and he's still sitting in my chair and I'm still standing there. And I think both of us are like, why are you not leaving? But I had to really get direct and finally say, so you're in my office and I am back. Can you get out of my chair? And you know, we had a real argument about it. Mm -hmm. He made me feel like I was being ridiculous and unreasonable, like, geez, it's just an office. Why don't you go down the hall? My old office is there. I really, I was really mad about it. I really dug in on it. My office was, it had the better window. I wanted yeah. it, yeah. I wanted that office. And I had to argue to get it back. And it just really set off this feeling of there are all kinds of metaphors. There's a lot of other ways where you come back and you've been displaced and other people have been doing pieces of your job, figuring out how to get by without you for several mm -hmm. months. And you're questioning all of this. Should I be here? Am I needed here? Is this mm -hmm. the right thing? And you've got this new pull of being needed at home, being mm -hmm. needed by your baby. And all of those dynamics get really difficult to manage when you just literally feel like there's no physical place for you. Someone has taken your chair and yeah. there's nowhere for you to sit. Yeah. And it's a pretty extreme example, but I, your point uh, about the subtler aspects of this too, is that frequently people will start to move on a bit. Three months is a long time. And then trying to reassert yourself. It is a nice, I think the book works for a number of different audiences, but even stepping outside of the, the gendered look, the ways in which you do assert yourself throughout your career in the stories that you tell are good life lessons. I think for any reader where you demonstrate consistently, and I guess you've done this through your life, it's, it's in your book, that mm -hmm. you're not a pushover. You're agreeable, yeah. but yeah. You, you're agreeable to a point. And then there is like a hard backbone there. That That's is, right. That's yeah. right. It's important. Yeah. It's connected to how I negotiated deals in all of the years that that was my job. Yeah. I've, I guess I've put a lot of thought into choosing when I'm going to be agreeable or when I need to hold a hard line and, mm -hmm. and stand up and say, no, that's not okay. It's got to be this. In some ways, that's the bigger picture idea too, where ideally any manager would want to help someone grow and progress through their career in the way that you did. And a lot of that required your managers, your mentors to empathize with you. Mm -hmm. And then I think part of the lesson that I got from your book is that you were putting yourself out there so that we could understand better simple things that we might have missed yeah. that actually make, make a huge impact on how someone feels about their potential for growth. Exactly. And in that stealing of the office example, I shared that because I wanted to show that for me, it was a really hard moment that caused me to question, do I belong here? Mm -hmm. And I think back and I think what a simple thing it would be for a manager to instead the, the day before I came back, clear out my office, get it all ready, yeah. be, be waiting and ready to welcome me back. And that's, that doesn't take a lot of effort. It just takes a little thoughtfulness in, in recognition of what an important moment that 
is and what you can do to make sure that it goes smoothly. And because these are universal experiences, the other thing that I've learned in telling that story, which I thought, yeah, I, I was telling you, isn't this so crazy? Can you believe it? Most women that I share that with tell the same thing back. Oh, that happened to me too. Sometimes it's a chair was stolen or a coat hook or Mm -hmm. a stapler. It can vary what the thing was, but that feeling of coming back and people have taken over your space and your stuff is actually, it's pretty common. Yeah. And unfortunately, toxic work cultures are also pretty common. Mm -hmm. And and that's another uh, thing that I was reflecting on as I was reading is that a lot of the toxic cultures are led by men. And there is work for us all to do to understand where that toxicity resides and then also figuring out who can change their behavior and then who really just needs to get expulsed from from the greater body to, to make the organization healthier. Do you have any perspective on that based on your experience? Like it does feel like there's an interesting mix of of good bosses, a blend of the middle. And then there's some folks, I I get the impression like you've run into folks who are less redeemable in, in your career. Can you talk a bit about how you make those distinctions and how you navigate reaching out to try to help versus maybe overextending yourself to someone who's not really going to be able to receive it? Yeah, that's one of the biggest questions. And it's this relationship between you and your manager is it is multifaceted and it's a very human relationship to me. Mm-hmm. That, that's my approach. It's not just about the work you do, the work you're asked to do. There's so much more to it. And mm-hmm. is this a person who believes in me, who mm-hmm. is supporting me, who's going to mm-hmm. advocate for me? And yeah, the times that I felt like I was working for someone who wasn't a good boss, it was that they were letting me down in those areas. And, and that could be in the context of other things happening in a company and other elements of a toxic environment. But I think that it's not so much a whole company culture is thumbs up or thumbs down. It's about the personal experience that everyone has inside that company. And that to me is largely steerable and driven by the manager. So I look back and people ask me for advice about how do you know when, when you can improve a situation or when you should stick it out, so to speak, or when it's time to move on. And to that, I say, number one, you've really got to examine your relationship with your manager. Is this somebody who believes in me, who Mm -hmm. cares about me, who is advocating for me is going to bat. And I always suggest you, you might try asking for things directly. That's Mm -hmm. what I did. That's what I would do is Mm -hmm. if you feel like they're not advocating for you, ask them to, Mm -hmm. if they still don't, then you've got to look for your workaround in a company. And I think that they're often there. You look to somebody who has more power than you, who's higher up than you, who you think probably does care, is likely to care. And you go to them and you ask them to believe in you, care about you, help you figure out the solution. And I think that's how a lot of these solutions happen. I think some would call it a workaround. I, I don't know. I think it's it's finding those relationships yeah. in a company and expecting of your manager that they're going to advocate for you. And if they don't, I think you look elsewhere in a company. And I do that. I would always do that before looking to leave a company yeah. because it's that just because an individual relationship with a manager isn't the right one doesn't mean that you're not going to find another great one there. Yeah, that makes sense. And it does uh, tie to the old adage, people leave their bosses more than their jobs. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So watch the clock. That one was interesting, just particularly in light of COVID. Mm -hmm. Can you quickly hit on that one? Yeah, I mean, this watch the clock is about really being aware of the time and the schedule constraints that women are balancing, particularly with work and home. Mm -hmm. And I think that going into COVID working moms, especially were striking a tenuous balance already, you're keeping your schedule tight, and you'd figure out you put a lot of work into the schedule itself and making sure that you'd map things out, that you could get your kids where they needed to go. That you could get somebody watching them, that you could get yourself to the meeting on time, mm-hmm. leave on time. There's all of these sort of domino effect kind of factors. And if something fell out of place, it could really create a lot of stress or a lot of work to find a new solution. I yeah. think when COVID happened, that knocked a lot of the dominoes over for a lot of women. There was all of a sudden a lot less access to childcare. There was a lot less childcare outside the home, school outside the home, but you were really confronted with the reality that like two big things, uh, your job and your kids often needed you every hour. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of overlap and interaction. And I think we've all seen what's happened there and how many women have left the workforce or in my own company, you needed to reduce hours, change schedules, try a temporary leave to, to get things organized. And we've been trying so many different solutions, trying to figure out how to help women get through this past year. And I think it's all pointing to a a big need for awareness and empathy and support Mm -hmm. from employers and managers going forward. How do we come out of this? How do we help these women who did need to leave the workforce come back to doing the work that they want to do? And I think that if I can find a silver lining in this year, it's that the, at least everyone is aware of it. Everyone's seen it now. You can't miss it when somebody's kids are running behind them right. on the Zoom screen. Yeah, so yeah. I think there's more recognition when it comes to household management, childcare, and mm-hmm. that double shift that women experience. I think there's more recognition. We all need to keep on putting a lot of brain power into finding the right solutions. Yeah. And I liked also where you signaled as a CEO, as a leader, when the holiday party was the same mm-hmm. day as your daughter's concert, you took that as an opportunity to let your team know who you are. Yeah. And another thing that I think is really important that's true in life and therefore really important for leaders to talk about, honestly, is that you cannot do everything that you want to do and that people want you to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I was faced with one of those examples, um, CEO of my company. We were a portfolio company of a larger business that, you know, set the holidays at the big holiday party date. That was all company event. And they set it for the exact same date and time as my daughter's school holiday concert. And I realized it and I was like, oh man, I can't not go to the company party, but I can't not go to this concert. And I weighed the two and I decided that I was going to go to my daughter's concert that way you know, that they would miss me more and mm-hmm. that I would feel I was missing out more if I didn't attend what, what was every year, really one of those really important moments with them, with the school community. So I wrote a you know letter to all my employees and I told them why, you know, why I was missing the party and what for. And I was really surprised. It was, I was a newer CEO then. It was one of, you know, those earlier moments of the starting to come into your own of really just being honest about who you are. Yeah. And I, I was overwhelmed by the notes and conversations that came out of that from people, from men and women who said that I've never had a CEO really acknowledge and say that it's okay to mm-hmm 
you know, miss something work-related because of your family, that it's Mm -hmm. okay to choose your family. And so it was really, I learned a lot from them and recognizing, okay, this is something that you need to not just do, but talk about how you're doing it. Yeah. That's what struck me. If you didn't write the the note, Mm -hmm. that would have been a very different set of signals. And it is, it is interesting throughout where you have to continue to rise to the challenge, even if the the state of play changes as you advance in your uh, career. The one I wanted to spend another moment on too is uh, rule six, which is uh, speak up so that she doesn't have to. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, this really gets to, you call them cringy moments, but these uncomfortable moments that we all can't ignore that they happen in the workplace. I mean, the Me Too movement unearthed a lot of them, but it still happens and it happens in comments and conversations and can sometimes be micro moments or a sentence of the ways that people talk to women or about women in the workplace that, that women are confronted with. And I share a story at the beginning of this chapter about a time when I was much younger, I was out to a, you know, fancy steak dinner after closing a deal and the whole deal team had gone out. I was the only woman and the youngest and really had no power in the situation. And one of the more senior men on the team started really focusing on me across the table, asking me all of these questions that were making me blush about my dating life. And yeah. What was I wearing? And it's just uh, it super uncomfortable for me. I didn't really know how to handle it. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to make it a thing or an issue. And this other man at the table, a very senior partner at the law firm we were working with, just really, it was so easy for him to do this. And he just very casually said to the other guy, as your lawyer, I recommend you not to say things like that. Laughed it off. Everyone laughed and it just shut it down and moved on. And I look back on that and think that's the responsibility of people who have the power. It's Mm -hmm. so much easier for you to interrupt, interject, stop things, move a conversation away and not leave women to their own devices. And I'm thinking a lot about this one. There's a news cycle now about Governor Cuomo and these women who have come forward with their stories. And I've been thinking about it again in this context. uh, We put this tremendous burden on these women to be so brave and come forward and speak Mm -hmm. up for themselves and tell these stories. What about everyone else who saw it happening and had more power than them? What could they have said? What could they have done to not leave these women, these young women, especially having to muster up all of the bravery themselves to speak up? Yeah, yeah, it's, it definitely gets the wheels turning and it is on uh, really on all of us, particularly those of us who may be more senior further on in our careers, more in a position of influence to take on that responsibility really to hold people in check. And I do like that you give different examples about doing it through humor, doing it in the moment versus following up after the moment, but not letting it go. And you also, you talk about your regrets from your experience when Mm -hmm. you did let things happen that you could have Mm -hmm. done something more about. I like that you really flesh out these uh, rules with your own experiences, some of which sounded difficult to navigate. Yeah. And and the other thing that I really, with this rule in particular, did a lot of testing out the strategies and the ideas that I was recommending, not with CEOs, but with people in the middle or who had been in those early manager roles. Like maybe they're, you know, not the most junior person anymore, but they're not the CEO. They can't Mm -hmm. just come in and dominate the conversation. And I worked with readers. A lot of them were male middle managers 
customers to help me really test out, like, would this work? Would you really say this? What Mm -hmm. would you do? And letting them call me out on, I think some of the earlier drafts of this, I remember were a little too CEO-ish and it was like, well, you can say that, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that. And I put this chapter through the ringer of let me get to something that's actually useful um, and practical for somebody to, to use as a guide. Yeah. It reminded me of what I always wanted out of HR trainings, even though I knew mm-hmm. they couldn't necessarily get as real life because because they're constrained. But I felt like this was a little more of just an honest conversation about how to navigate in an ethical, professional way while repping for people who may need support. Rule number seven, don't make her ask twice. I think my, my wife may have informed me of this rule as well, but I realized that wasn't what <laughs> it was in, intended for. But can you share what that one is? This is really about negotiation, especially negotiation of compensation, really all elements of it. There's a lot of people who take the approach of you say no, and if somebody really wants it, they'll push you and they'll come ask again. Mm-hmm. And you really set up a dynamic where people have to negotiate hard and self advocate. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of information, a lot of statistics out there that show that when you set women up to have to aggressively self-advocate, it statistically does not go as well for them as it does for men, because Mm -hmm. there's this catch 22 and people don't actually like it when women ask for things aggressively and they'll penalize them for that. Or they'll ascribe negative personality traits to people, to women when they negotiate more aggressively. So it sets up this cycle that it's hard for women to break out of where Mm -hmm. you set them up. So they have to ask, they have to advocate, but then when they do, you hold it against them. Really. I I start with don't make her ask twice, give her a straight answer. Yes. No. Or what do we need to do to to make it? Yes. The first time she asks, understanding that it it took more for her to get to that ask than, than it would for a man on average. Mm -hmm. But I actually end that chapter with saying, you know what better yet, don't make her ask at all. Be proactive. I especially believe this in the context of compensation and making job offers, offer the right amount for what the role is worth. Don't Mm -hmm. do that thing of I'm going to offer the low end of a range and leave room. Like when I'm making an offer, I'm I'm very upfront about, yeah, I don't believe in negotiation. Here's why. And Mm -hmm. therefore I've been thoughtful about what's the full fair value. And this is what it is. And we can talk it through. I'm not setting it up. And in fact, I'm, I'm not holding back money for you to ask for. And I try to take the negotiation element out where I can, because I know that it doesn't set up women to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm ready for your next book on uh, negotiation tactics too, mm-hmm. because it permeates this book in a very human, authentic way. Be an equal opportunity asshole. I love the title. I'll <laughs> put the explicit E on this episode. But can you, can you, we talked a bit about it as ideally you want to be someone who they can relate to, but we all have our own styles. And part of that style is sometimes coming across as the tough, firm, but fair, but uh, can you flesh out uh, being an equal opportunity asshole? Yeah, it's really about what's about there's always value in directness and honesty and telling people what you really think of their work, even if it's negative feedback, not positive feedback. And the worst thing that you can feel as a woman is that someone's going easy on you. And I, I and I've, I've had both of these experiences. I've worked for some really tough bosses who were extremely challenging and maybe a little rough around the edges about it, but I loved working for them and they pushed me a lot further in my career because 
because they thought I could do better. They pushed me to do more and I could rise to the occasion just like the men. Mm -hmm. They talked to me the same way. And I felt like I was an equal. I felt like it actually earned me more respect from the other men, my Mm -hmm. other colleagues to see that I was being pushed that way, challenged that way and could answer to it just like them. Whereas Mm -hmm. I've been in other situations where I think of it as like misguided chivalry. Like Mm -hmm. people get a little nervous. They give softer feedback. They don't want to be too harsh, so to speak. And that's not a good feeling as a woman in the workplace, either if you feel like someone's going easy on you, like they think you're going to cry. So yeah. So that's what this rule is about is like, if you dish it out, just do it to everybody. That's better. It's not, I'm not encouraging everybody to be rough on people all the time, but I'm giving a little asterisk to that and saying, but if you are, if that's who you are, because this whole book is about authentic management Mm -hmm. and bringing your whole person into it. If that's the kind of person you are, just be that to everyone. That's better and more equalizing than treating people differently. Yeah. And even uh, deal with the discomfort you might have of a crying employee at times is another thing that- Some great pointers in there from from other managers about what to do, what not to do when someone cries, because that does happen. And biologically, we women are more inclined to cry. Yeah. And it's- I've cried at work. I've cried at work for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you still have to work. You still have to do the stuff. And, uh, And then also understand that frequently if someone is crying- they feel much more uncomfortable uh, than you do. And uh, it does come back to the importance of empathy and trying to understand what Mm -hmm. it might feel like to be on the other side of this dynamic. And then the last one in terms of the rules is rule number nine, which is tell her that you see her potential. And this is the flip side of the tough love. It's, It's also sure you see her potential, but also be smart about how you're giving her compliments and how you're seeing her Mm -hmm. upside. Can you round that one out a bit? Yeah, it's part of it is again, just that that not just honesty, imagination, like envision the, a bigger path for her, talk to her about it, say, say it out loud. That's something there, there are gaps in the, in how women think their managers perceive them. Mm. And I, I talk about here and throughout the book, there's this kind of what I think is a myth of this confidence gap that women aren't confident enough. And if they just, if you just had more confidence in yourself, you'd be successful. You know, what I say and what I think is that it's really more that we're as managers, not giving them reason to be confident that we think they're great and just tell them directly what they're doing, what you see them becoming, what role is next for them and engage them in that conversation, again, inviting them to that conversation instead of setting them up for where they have to self-advocate. So it's that. And then, yeah, it's also about how you do that. What are the compliments and making sure that they're truly genuinely, you're identifying her strengths and pushing her to bring out her strengths even more and not complimenting. Of course, again, these things that you think you don't have to say anymore, but I do think you have to say that means don't compliment her physical appearance, compliment her intellect, please. And, And that stuff still, I think I gave an example in the book of that's not from that long ago when I was, you know, asked to join like a, a, a panel at a conference and walk up and the, one of the men on the panel, a fellow CEO is this panel got a whole lot better looking. And like, what about like this? Yeah. This panel got a whole lot smarter. Like that's what we want to hear as yeah. Women yeah, yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then even as we're getting towards uh, wrapping up here too, like you're someone who people took a chance on as well. So not just mm-hmm. seeing the potential, but giving a woman in your organization, giving someone who has a different profile than the majority of people in the room, 
a chance. Yeah. One of the CEOs that I interviewed in the book, Sam Yagen, currently he's been CEO, founder of a lot of things, but currently shop runner. He talks about how he loves to create roles that are designed to give someone the chance to show their potential. He's a big fan of making up jobs. What he meant by that was, you know, if you see someone and you see this talent and these skills, instead of trying to fit them into a pre-existing path to say, I'm I'm going to create this job where you're going to do these four things because you're going to be amazing at them. And you create that environment and that role in which someone can really stand out and shine and have an impact. And so I loved that idea of adapting the jobs themselves Mm. to be fit to showcase the talents of, Mm. of the people who work for you. Yeah, quite a bit to chew on. There's nine rules. It's a quick read. There's a lot of really engaging stuff uh, in here. It's called The Good Boss. Kate, as we're wrapping up, any any concluding thoughts to bring this whole thing home? I said it at the beginning, and as I say, it's always worth repeating. My hope is that every manager, women and men included, will read the book and just really engage in this idea that it's not women's work to support women in the workplace. It's all of our jobs. And I'm thankful for everybody who gives the book a read and engages on, on supporting women. Excellent. Kate Eberly Walker is the CEO of Presence Learning. She's the author of The Good Boss. Lots uh, for us to chew on. It's a trend uh, to keep an eye on. If you're not a good boss, increasingly, uh, you may no longer be a boss. So there's plenty to learn about and to grow from this book. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Write us a review, share the love. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.